the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. For sports fans, there's no better place to get breaking news, real time commentary, and insightful analysis for every sports story that matters to you the most. Then The Athletic. Download the app, follow your favorite teams and leagues, get a personalized feed of exclusive ad free content. For every story at the heart of the game, visit theathletic.com slash SpotTrack, S-P-O-T-R-A-C, and get 40% off your first year subscription today. Happy Monday morning. My name is Mike Giannetti. It's uh, riding solo Monday for me today, so I'll keep this kind of brief. I'm going to bounce around some NFL cap implications, just a quick rundown of where teams stand, who might be in trouble still some maneuvering still to do, and then just a few players maybe in question, maybe disgruntled. Um, you know, there's a, a couple of angles to look at it there and uh, their current contract situations. Then I'll flip switch to the NBA, of course. We have a Nets departure and a 76ers departure, of course. Two polarizing teams hitting the offseason. Is there room to move? Is there room to breathe on those rosters? What's the cap look like next year? What do those contracts look like going forward? I kind of break that down piece by piece on the back side of this show. Okay. It's a, it's a defensive NFL conversation today, unfortunately, which is somewhat weird. I mean, generally speaking, look, we've talked plenty about disgruntled quarterbacks this offseason in terms of Aaron Rodgers, but generally speaking, that side of the ball dominates the offseason, so to say, you know, roster spot, competition, things like that. It's it's kind of a tough road right now for defensive players. I mean, we've talked about it before, how these fringe edge rushers have been hitting the market or even become become trade pieces, and their value has just been tanking. Uh, you know, the clownies, the Ngakwes, they get franchise tagged and then traded and then have to have salary retained. You know, Khalil Mack's contract numbers in Chicago have been somewhat damning to that roster and their ability to build the offensive side of the ball. I, I just think there's a push. There's certainly a swing from, from a gameplay standpoint to the offensive side of the ball, and I wonder if the money's not following suit now, and, and it's finally starting to catch up a little bit here to the point where you know, good teams are making the decision to forfeit defensive starters to get themselves cap prepared to be able to pay offensive players. I mean, that's certainly what we saw the Saints do, the Philadelphia Eagles do, just to name a few. This past offseason, the Rams have done that. The Rams let two defensive starters walk to, to Cleveland in order to acquire Matthew Stafford, in order to restructure a couple of offensive players. It's just kind of the way it's going right now. And I understand it, but uh, will there be a breaking point? Will these teams who are deading themselves so much on the offensive side of the ball, will it come up to catch them come playoff time? Because certainly that's, I think the mantra still holds, right? It takes running in defense when it gets down to the nasty weather you know, season of this NFL year. Will there be enough on that side of the ball? Or are these teams trimming too much fat off that side to be able to sustain the long marathon season? We'll see. It's, it's an interesting kind of trend that's been happening, and it's part of the cap crunch, unfortunately. And transition smoothly into Stefan Gilmore, who's on a team that I think many assume the Patriots will be better, maybe markedly better in 2021 with the opt-out players back for the most part with a gigantic free agent push this offseason, a couple of trade acquisitions. But this has been sort of the elephant in the room for me is Stefan Gilmore's place on this roster because, you know, Gilmore's <laughs> Gilmore's coming, coming of age moment to the Patriots four years ago was – extremely shocking to me. This is a team I follow closely being Buffalo based. And just from a team building standpoint, they've been, you know, the cream of the crop. So when they swung this big for Stefan Gilmore four years ago, pulled him away from Buffalo and free agency on five years, 65 million. It's just not something they were doing. And really up until this off season, it isn't something they've ever done in the Tom Brady era. So there's no question that, you know, the regime in New England valued this guy markedly higher than maybe any other free agent acquisition that this team has made of late, maybe ever. It was just, it was a wow. It was a wow the way this contract was structured. It was a wow, you know, 
how strong it was over the first four seasons. But as you've heard me say many times, the devil is in the details. We are on the fifth and final year of that contract. And I'm sure you've heard myself and plenty of others say this out loud. Stefan Gilmore is set to make about $7.75 million this year. That's about his max. Now he's got some other incentives built in. There are some roster bonuses that have been paid out, uh, you know, small, small roster bonuses. But that's generally about half of what this contract looked like at the time of signing. It was $13 million a year, which at the, t- at the time was way up there. And just kind of stayed near the top until Tredavious White, Jalen Ramsey kind of reset this thing not too long ago. So this was a strong contract. It did hold out. And that's probably what the Patriots are saying out loud internally here is, hey, this guy got his money from us. This guy got, you know, utmost respect in terms of financial structure and financial payout from us, something we just don't do with really any position, not even the quarterback position. Um so there is some some ground for the Patriots to hold on to here if they, A, want to keep this guy, and B, want to keep him at this price, you know, the last year of his contract. Honor your contract. You've been paid out early. you got to give us a deal here late, especially in a year where, look, every team's looking for a deal in this cap crunch. So it's possible that myself and, and many others are making something out of nothing here and that Stefan is just going to have to suck it up and play this out because that's what the Patriots are going to do. The Patriots have also been the team that make late July, mid-August trades. <laughs> you know, they kind of wait it out like a veteran free agent would and, and kind of let teams assess themselves in training camp to find deficiencies. Maybe injuries pop up where holes then are created on rosters. And, you know, New England pounces either to get somebody they need late or to send somebody like this who has you know, a flaw, either it's contractual or, or, or team, you know, on the field that they can move off their roster to either get themselves in better shape this year or something that they can roll into next year, something they're always thinking about. What can we do now to make next year better? Um, that It seems like that would be the case here. I mean, they can shave almost half of his cap hit off by moving on right now, either via release or via trade. It's 16.2 on the cap. It's eight and a half million dead right now on the last year. So there's a, there's significant savings from a cap perspective, even though the cash, like I said, is only about, you know, a little under eight, which is a steal. Now I know you're, any of you who follow the Patriots or, or follow those advanced metrics, you're going to, you're going to clap back at me right now and say, look, this guy was terrible last year. This guy isn't even worth having in the conversation. He doesn't have trade value. He's almost 31 years old. What are we even talking about here? Let's just let this guy play out the 7 million and go from there. I, I just don't buy it. All right. I, you know, I know you're all talking about the pro football focus stuff where he was, you know, 60th or something like that in terms of cornerback play last year. That's fine. But when I put him over the past two years into our projection system and I put him up against other 29, 30, 31 year olds who have signed contracts, He's 8% higher than anybody else who signed, including Darius Slay, who got run out of, you know, Philly to Detroit via trade and then had to basically re-up. 29-year-old Darius Slay got over almost $17 million a year. So, you know, there is a precedence for players at or around this age resetting the market. Now, is, is Stefan Gilmer going to do that? I don't believe so. I do believe there is some decline built into this. I just don't think he's terrible. I don't think he's the... He's a the the essentially the last graded starting cornerback, right? If we're talking thirty-two players out there, and there's two on every team, I I don't see it. I don't think he's that bottom of the barrel starting cornerback in the league right now. And his 2019 production would say otherwise as well. So I look more in the Joe Hayden conversation. You know, that's a name you probably aren't hearing too much on a national level, but Pittsburgh's held on to him even though. You know, my metrics say he's probably a little bit overpriced. They restructured him. You know, at 30 years old, they brought him, they kept him at, at a little over 11 a year. You know, Logan Ryan in Tennessee, that wasn't a great deal from from a bang for buck standpoint, but that was over 10 million a year. You know, Kyle Fuller just left, you know, the Bears for the Broncos. He's getting almost 10 million a year. These are all players at or around Stefan Gilmore's age. Chris Harris, right, who, who goes to Denver. To, leaves Denver for the Chargers, excuse me, at eight and a half a year. I understand that's probably where people think this should be. Richard Sherman, nine a year with incentives. It can look like that. 
right? It, it can look, it can be basically just a pumped up version of what he's set to make right now. And maybe that's what the Patriots end up on. All right, let's fine. Let's rip it up. You know, let's see what we can do. Let's make this totally incentive based. Let's give you a, a let's guarantee that salary, things like that. Maybe that's all that needs to happen here for these two, two sides to continue forward for one more year. But there's also been reports that Gilmore wants out and you can understand that, you know, if he's, if the Patriots don't seem to want to play ball right now with him, this guy's got two to three years left that he can make some money in this league. And he'd probably like to go the Darius Slay route and find a team that will maybe not even acquire him. It might be too late in the game. It may have to be an outright release, but then bring him in on a Richard Sherman type 49ers contract, uh, a two to three year contract. Maybe those two years are guaranteed, certainly incentive based, maybe playoff based if he's going to a contender, which I'd imagine he'd choose to. I think that's probably what happens. And oh, by the way, San Francisco is a pretty good choice for this. So, uh, you know, the, the comparison with player versus team is actually pretty spot on here in terms of where I think this could end up. But I, it's interesting to think about it from the Patriots side. Because if you go back to what I said a few minutes ago, which is we, we paid this guy, we overpaid this guy based on our metrics, based on our standards. And now we need him to do a little bit for us, which is to take a little bit less this year in a season where, yes, he probably should be going to get his final contract, but we need to hold on to this guy because we have steps to take to get back up in the AFC East, and he's a part of this. And my guess is that's exactly how they think. Again, it's a guess, it's speculation, but this could be a bit of a battle for the next six weeks, especially as we get to camp. And will he report to camp is really the next precedence to look at. So this one's tough. Um, I wonder if there have been offers out there from teams, you know, late round picks to bring him in for tour to offer a restructured contract, like I mentioned. Um, and the Patriots are just kind of holding tight to, to, to see what they may have already on the roster as they close in on training camp here. But this one is, uh, is way up in the air, in my opinion. It could go either way. And I think the Patriots really hold all the power in this one. Let's switch gears to a safety, a good safety. Above average, I'm not sure he's great. This one, you know, look, I like Jamal Adams a lot. I think he's a difference maker at times. And I think that's the problem. I, I just don't think, and maybe it's a safety thing. You know, maybe it's a situation where a player at that position just can't dominate the game anymore like it used to be able to when it was a, a rougher, tougher league, when when defense was given a little bit more of a chance. <laughs> let's be let's be frank about it. Um but with that being said, a couple of things are heavily in Jamal Adams' favor here for kind of duping the system and turning funny money into major contracts where it just maybe isn't warranted. A, the Jets drafted him number six overall four years ago. So check, check number one for Jamal Adams. You are a... You are a product of where you're drafted. I say this all the time with players who get franchise tagged. The second somebody slaps that tag on you, that becomes your value. You know, whether it's worthy or not, that becomes your value. And the second somebody picks you sixth overall, I don't care what position you play, you know, Saquon Barkley, Christian McCaffrey, the second you're taking top five as a running back, you are no longer in that devaluation process. You're just not because you have a starting point that is so much farther away from everybody else at your position that you're just going to be treated as an anomaly. And that's how I see Jamal Adams. And again, I don't know if he's consistently this dominating playmaker. I, I think maybe players close to him would say, oh yeah, at times, you know, he's the most important person on the field. And I get that. But when I'm just putting numbers against other safeties, whether they're box safeties or versatile guys like Tyron Matthew or shutdown guys like a Buddha who really don't put up the interceptions. It's, you know, he comes out 12 and a half million a year over the past two seasons of production, which is two and a half million less than Justin Simmons just signed essentially. So mathematically, I can't even get him to reset his own positional market, but number six overall selection. And Oh, by the way, Seattle rips him from New York for, two firsts and a third for a fourth and a player in Bradley McDougal. I mean, that's just a monster move for a safety. It's a monster. Could you imagine somebody acquiring Christian McCaffrey for that? I mean, that's sort of where we are right now. 
both of them, you know, the, the top AAV at each of these positions is about 15 and change, you know, a little north of 16 in terms of McCaffrey. And it's just where we're going. I think Saquon Barkley is going to push this into 16 and a half soon. You know, so what's going to happen with Jamal Adams? If, if, if you give up this much capital, if you're Laramie Tunzel, and then you're ripped away from Miami to Houston, Laramie Tunzel self-represented himself three and a half million more than any other tackle in the history of football. Okay. He didn't need an agent for that. He just said, look at what they gave up for me. End of conversation. Here's what I'm, here's what I need. I need three for 66. I want 60% of it guaranteed. And I want to be the starting left tackle done, done and done. See you on the field. Jalen Ramsey finally gets himself out of Jacksonville to a great Rams organization that has almost zero cap space to work with. Very similar trade packaged to what Jamal Adams was, was uh, acquired for. And Tredavious White signs a nice contract in Buffalo. And Jelly Ramsey, a couple of weeks later, says, hold my beer. And upped them by over $2 million with tons more guaranteed. I mean, Jalen Ramsey is over $71 million in practical guarantees on a $100 million contract. That's, that's nuts. It's nuts. I mean, you're talking about the Stefan Gilmore contract that was given out four years ago. Four for 65. This is five for 100 with 71% practically guaranteed. It's just outstanding on a good team, on a contender, on a team that probably could have gotten a, a bit of a team discount from most players, but not from this guy because they gave up the farm to get this guy. Two firsts and a fourth. And that's just sick. That's all they gave up. Okay. Jacksonville got nothing else back. Two firsts and a fourth. The Rams get Jalen Ramsey, and 18 months later, they get the right to sign him to $71 million guaranteed. That's the trend we're on right now. So I can tell you Jamal Adams maybe isn't the prototypical superstar on the field all the time. You know, Jalen Ramsey's doing things behind the scenes that we don't notice unless we're studying closely. But he's pretty damn good. Laramie Tunzel, similar, right? I mean, his position isn't eye-poppingly pointed out every single play, but every now and then... It'll be, well, that's why they're paying him. That's why they're paying him $22 million a year. And I think that's, the, that's what you're going to have to get out of Jamal Adams. Every now and then, maybe once a game, you know, maybe not even as much as once a game, this guy's going to make that play that stands out that makes us all remember, oh, that's right. That's why he was drafted number six. That's why he was given, that, given up for that much in a trade. And that's why he's going to be worth what I think is going to be $18 million. Because generally speaking, the safety market comes a few percentage points behind the cornerback and the wide receiver market. Those two markets tend to align nicely. So Amara Cooper gets 20, Jalen Ramsey gets 20. That's kind of the boat we're in. Now, Julio has since reset that wide receiver market. Daniel Hopkins has reset it. And I think there's more coming. I think Chris Godwin, I think Allen Robinson can both go that, go, go that big. And Devontae Adams in the next couple of weeks, maybe months here, should destroy it. I mean, it should be $25 million a year for Devontae Adams. So... If the wide receiver market's pushing that far forward, the cornerbacks will follow and the safeties will have to come up at least a little bit. So if they're at 15 and change now, and I'm telling you what I'm telling you with these double first round pick trades, then it can't just be 16 million in my opinion. It's got to be 18. So four for 72 tacked onto his fifth year option, you know, five for close to 90, five for close to 85 is really what we're looking at here. It's going to be huge, you know, and maybe this, maybe Seattle can can slim down his guaranteed money a little bit in, in return for, well, you're, you know, statistically speaking, you're not really the complete player that a Simmons is or a Buddha is or blah, blah, blah. They, can, they may be able to get there, but I don't think they have much to say over the total value of this contract um, and the structure of this contract. That's going to have to be structured pretty darn close to Simmons in terms of how, uh, how the guarantees work how much is locked in, things like that. And you remember Simmons was, was tagged. So he had to go through his whole rookie contract, one franchise tag, and basically a free agent then signing to stay in Denver. It's a little bit different with Seattle. They'll have some cap flexibility to move off of that fifth year option, rip it up, tear it up, make it a little easier on themselves this year. But I don't know that they can just 
carefully push past Justin Simmons' contract. I think they have to blow it out of the water. And I don't, I don't know why Jamal Adams would accept anything less because not signing a contract you don't want simply puts yourself in the best position possible if you're Jamal Adams, right? If you play out this contract and you head towards free agency, you're probably getting franchise tagged, but there's just going to be so much animosity because this organization gave up heaven and hell to get you. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. So the longer it goes that you don't have a contract signed, the worse it looks on Seattle, not Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams would probably happily take a franchise tag next year. Now it's you know tough injury-wise, we, as we've seen, but it's a good chunk of coin, fully guaranteed at the time it's, it's signed. So I, I, I think Adams can slow play this thing. To me, the problem is, how do you make these gigantic trades? these double first round trades and don't have a contract built into it. I, that, I love that these trades are happening and, I'm, and I don't want them to go away. In fact, I want more of them. I want more player for player trades. I want more impactful first round trades. I want it to look and feel a little bit more like the NBA in season and off season, but teams have to be better than this. Like the, this is just one of those situations where you can't let the player take the leverage. You can't like, you got to say, all right, we're going to make this work. But before this thing gets processed to the league, we're locking you in. At, and they could have done 15 at that point. Simmons wasn't signed. Buddha wasn't signed. You, you could have done maybe four for 60 on that extension, tagged on to where he was, blown up the fifth-year option, make, made it super cap-friendly this year for yourselves, and then really kick things in next year when you wanted to anyway, which is why we're here right now. I, uh, that one, that one's really always confused me. How do you, how do you make these monster trades, but just say, we're going to worry about the contract later. Now the Stafford stuff, I get that different situation. Okay. He's a little later in, in his career, that position specifically, we got to make sure there's a fit. We got to make sure he can be, he can take a next step with a better roster and that it has been a D Detroit problem and not a Matt Stafford problem. So that one, I kind of understand he's already making pretty good coin anyway. I mean, 19 million this year and next year, they'll blow it up after this year if, if, if it works out properly. But that one I can put, a, give a little bit of pause to, but these young guys, especially still on rookie contracts that you're bringing over, knowing the extension's coming at some point, but you just let it, you let it fester, you let it build momentum and you give the player that much leverage. I, I've never understood that. To me, it is, let's get this done ASAP. And if it stinks in 18 months, it's our bad. But at least we did it under our terms as soon as possible with cap, age, career, and window in mind. It's not like Seattle's window wasn't there a year ago when this trade was made. They were contenders. You know, Russ was an MVP candidate heading into 2020. So, I, again, I, I, that, that's the whole part that befuddles me the most is you do all the work to make these gigantic trades, but the contract just gets pushed down the way. That's totally backwards to me. Totally backwards. In fact, build the contract into part of the negotiation process. Well, we'll give you one first, but we're only giving you a second for the, for the next big pick because we're going to build in a four for $65 million extension, something you didn't want to have to do. We're going to do that for you. We're going to pay this guy. You, get, you had the rookie contract value. You blew it with him. We're going to pay him right now, but it means we're going to give up a second instead of a first on that, on that second asset. To me, that's the way I would do things. Now, maybe it's not realistic when you sit down with the actual negotiation, but I, I would build the the need to guarantee dollars for this player into the process versus let's just push that 18 months down the road, give up heaven and hell to get him. Let's just get him in the door and we'll worry about the other stuff later. Uh, I just think that's, a, that's an antiquated way to look at things. And I think the Seattle Seahawks are about to pay for that because the trends are not in their favor. They are in the player's favor. So again, you know, Stefan Gilmore, whether he's traded or released matters a little bit. If he's traded on that contract and they restructure it, you know, maybe it's something like a two for 22 extension, similar to Joe Hayden. If he's outright released, I, I have a feeling that it's going to go more of the Chris Harris, Richard Sherman route, which is maybe three for 26 or seven or eight, you know, just under 10 a year, but tons of incentives, tons of playoff incentives, tons of personal incentives, maybe some per game actives. 
and two, you know, if it's a three-year deal, it's two years fully guaranteed. So it's more about stability over the next three seasons versus let's just get you in the door to do a quick restructure on this year and just understand that you'll get a little more cash in pocket this year and we'll kind of roll it into next year and see what happens. My gut feeling says Gilmore is worried about his next three years. It may be his final three years and locking into a good team with a little bit more stability probably favors him more. So that's where I see that going. Again, if New England will cut him loose, and I'm not sure that they plan to right now. Jamal Adams, I don't think he's going anywhere, uh, A. And I think Seattle's about to get raked over the coals with, not like I said, not just a market reset on the safety position, but a market destruction on the safety position. Upwards of $18 million a year is where I'm projecting the Jamal Adams contract just because of where it started, where he came from, how he got here, and what it's looked like with examples in the past. All right, and the last player, sticking with the secondary here, this one's Xavier Howard and the Miami Dolphins are at a bit of a standstill. And I'm not usually one to side with the team because I, you know, I think the players in a sport that doesn't guarantee much of contracts but expects guys to go out there and kill themselves, you know, it's, it's hard for me not to side with players most of the time. I have a problem with this one. I had a problem with this one the second he signed it. Um, Howard signed a five-year 75 and change extension in May of 2019. So we're talking over two years ago now, which sounds like, oh, all right. Well, you know, the cap has changed. A lot of things have changed. The cornerback market has reset since then. So it, it seems like he's got a gripe. The problem is he already had he had two years left in his rookie contract. He did an immediate extension out of his rookie contract. So after year three, when he became eligible, that's when this the five years, 75 and change, was tacked onto it. So we're talking six years total here. We're talking a contract that runs through 2024. We're talking about a contract that has basically everything guaranteed in 2021 and half of next year's salary guaranteed for injury. So there's full stability this year and injury stability next year, which is normal. That's This is year three and year four, essentially, of the six-year contract. We're about halfway through right now, or set to be halfway through. But there's three years left after this year. So technically, four years left on this contract, on a five-year extension. I, I can't side with the player on this one. Because look, in twenty early twenty nineteen, I get it. You were just trying to tack on as many years as possible to be under contract so that you had something to rely on, something to fall back on. But this was a hell of a player. This was a star player who was drafted low, in my opinion. I mean, mid, you know, thirty eighth overall. This is a player who probably could have been a late first round pick. I think a lot of people think that. So he knows it. He's got a chip in his shoulder. He signed a nice contract, $15 million a year at the time. It was, you know, it pushed past Gilmore. It was the basis of Tredavious White's extension last year. It, it did a lot of good things, you know, a little bit under 40 practically guaranteed. So it, it lacked stability in terms of his guarantees. Like I said, they, they were rolling guarantees this year. They did vest. It's fully guaranteed now. He was injured that first year in 2019. He hit the injured reserve. So he had a lot of things go against him at the time of signing, essentially. But there's four years left. There's four years left. And you know, you've heard me say it before. I'll say it again here. If you want out, if you think you're going to want out at some point in your contract, then shorten the contract. If you look at a contract as it's being negotiated and you tell your agent, hey, what happens here? What happens if somebody goes $20 million a year? Or what happens if... The Dolphins are in last place in 2021, and I got to get the hell out of here. Am I able to get out right here, which is where we are, which is year three, <laughs> which is really the first year of the extension? Let's be perfectly frank. Um, and if, that, if the answer is no, if the agent looks back at him and says, no, you're stuck there. I mean, you're stuck till at least 2023, which is generally what anybody would tell you. It's just what happens. Two years to go, let's talk. 
extension, you know, or get me out of here. It's easier to move with two years, four years a term, four years a term, and you want a new contract, it's just not pliable. Now, they haven't restructured it, so that's good news for, for Miami. They've kind of kept this thing whole, and it's not crazy cash-wise. You know, they, they front-loaded a lot in that first year, so it's 12 this year, 13 next year, 12 and 12 and 2, 12.2, totally tenable salaries. Also, pretty good salaries for Xavier Howard, who's 28 going on 29 here. It, I get it. I get it. You know, there's been a big upswing at your position and your 15 million a year now is soon to be six, seven million less than the highest average paid cornerback in football. I get it, but it just can't be that way on a five-year extension, six-year total contract. It can't be that way. You can't have the gripe. You can't sign this deal and then demand out of it this early. It's just not possible. We have to get ourselves to a point, especially now, everybody in the world knows what the term void year means. Everybody. And it is essentially a way for teams to build in their prorated years without having to have the player sign these funny money contracts. Okay, we all know that half of 2022, all of 2023, and all of 2024 on Xavier Howard's contract is just a bunch of malarkey. Now, it's not to the Dolphins. They're hoping he plays those out, just like the the conversation we had with Gilmore. I I assume they are dying for him to play out that year. That's seven million cash, seven and a half million cash. I get, that's what I mean. Like I think over 12 million each of the next four years, it's pretty good coin for Xavier Howard. Would he love to restructure and get himself a new signing bonus? Of course. And that's what many of these superstar players have been doing. Give me a two to three year extension. I'll get myself a new signing bonus. You can tax and void years on if you need, or we can just roll something into another contract in two years. But when you sit yourself into a six year contract, that's not how the game works anymore. Now you got to play out 75% of the contract before we can even start to talk about that, flip it into a new one with a new bonus. It's just not how it works, you know? And if you sit tight, look, your cap hit jumps over 14 million next year. They're going to restructure that. Okay. They're going to take your 12 and change, give you 11 and a half of it in a signing bonus in March to free up some cap space to keep the rest of the roster intact. So you are going to get cash in hand, you know, they're going to fully guarantee that next year in March with a restructure. So you are pretty stable here with $25 million essentially over the next two years, which I get it. That's not Jalen Ramsey money, but you signed the deal. (laughs) I mean, you signed a full deal with fluff at the back end. That's got to stop if these kind of conversations should be had. And by the way, I'm not knocking the fact that he wants the new contract or maybe even wants out of Miami into a more, into a different situation. I don't know how that's all unfolding. And there's guys out there that are following that a lot closer than I am, but regardless, you know, regardless of whether it's new contract or new or new change of scenery, this contract structure right now basically says no. And Miami's just basically putting their foot down and saying, it's not even discussable right now. It's not because this was signed and this is not a movable situation for us. We don't want to, and we don't want to have to deal with teams that want to go and take this off of our hands. Two for 25, basically guaranteed because of what I just said. Fully guaranteed this year, half injury guaranteed next year, and a likely restructure next year for cap purposes so that they can keep some players, extend some players, and also, oh, by the way, give Xavier Howard a full guarantee on his 2022 salary. To me, that's the way this this is going to have to work. Now, look, we've had a couple of players take money in those fluff years and pull it forward to the real years. So you want to go take a few million out of 2023 and bump it up to maybe next year or even something this year or maybe a signing bonus this year that then prorates down? I guess that's acceptable. I mean, what does it matter? You know, if if he, if it's a couple million that he that we that we need to get out of the way, if we need to turn two into twenty five into two into twenty eight or two into twenty nine, I guess you can probably make that work. Um, and that's an option. I don't think an option is he's leaving Miami, and I don't think an option is we're ripping this thing up and starting over, because Miami owns the leverage here. This contract was signed. This is an old school contract full out max prorated contract that allows the team to do what they want 
with tons of fluff built into the back. So while I'm dying to sign with players as much as possible here, I just can't do it here yet. You know, nickel and dime it a little bit here. Like I said, pull some money from the back and bring it up a little bit if you have to. But I think this guy is going to have to play out two for 25 and just sort of deal with it. And then they can talk and then they can talk. Today's episode is also presented by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment, dedicated to serving the unique wealth management needs of athletes and top professionals in the sports and entertainment industry. Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment strives to bring sports professionals the financial solutions they need, including access to financing for supporting prospective NFL and NBA athletes through the draft process. Find out more about Morgan Stanley's pre and post draft loan program at morganstanley.com GSE. That's morganstanley.com slash G-S-E. All right, switching gears to the NBA here. We got a tale of two stories. The final four is set. It is certainly not the final four anybody assumed. Okay, I'm looking at the, the preseason win total projections on vegasinsider.com here. Bucks were projected to win the most in the regular season. So, you know, that wasn't too far off. Utah was 10th on this list, by the way. So that was a swing and a miss on that. On that. Um, you know, Atlanta and Phoenix were basically neck and neck. They're about around 37 wins, right in the middle of the pack. Philly, 44 wins, kind of sixth on this list. So it, to say that Atlanta and Phoenix overachieved, I think, is an understatement. And, you know, Atlanta specifically... After that coaching change, I think March 1st-ish, just, just found new life. I mean, it was like the cat was let out of the bag. They opened the box. Trey Young figured out how to be both talented and aggressive and sort of gritty, like get under your skin kind of gritty, which, I mean, that's that's the Chris Paul side of it, right? It's Chris Paul with, with a 30-foot three is what we're kind of seeing out of Trey Young right here, which is incredible. I mean, he's he's doing a lot more things than just spotting up. That's for damn sure. And specifically on this team, I, I always go back to the fact that they brought in a basically the assistant GM for the Golden State situation. So the, one of the guys who was integral in putting together the Golden State Warriors, Travis Schlenk, has been, you know, was given the keys to this Hawks team in May of 2017. He's the guy that traded Doncic for Trey Young. He's the guy that brought in Capella from Houston when Daryl Morey decided that big men didn't matter anymore. He wanted to go completely small. So I think it's hysterical that this team that he's concocted, which, God, we gave him so much shit for, and we just did. I mean, you know, pulling in all these shooters and Gallinari and Trey Young and Bogdanovich and and hurt her and, and everything all together, you know, was it just a mismatch of people and how was it going to work? Well, here's how it worked. They were spinning their wheels for half of the season. That I mentioned the coaching change. I mentioned the, the character, the character change in Trey young, whether that was built from coaching or whether that was just something that he figured out internally. Um, those two things, plus all of this shooting depth, Guess what, folks? Guess what wins in the NBA right now? It ain't the big guy, okay? And it's certainly not the big guy sitting on the follow line not knowing what to do with the ball, which is what we saw from Joel Embiid this series, unfortunately. Um, it's shooters. It, it's sharp shooters. It's guys who can create a shot and hit from 16 to 30. It's a plethora depth of shooters, right? Foul trouble didn't matter to Atlanta. Guys having off days. Bogdanovich was completely absent from game seven. And next man up. Next man up. Trey Young, you know, had a terrible first half. Kevin Herter carried that thing. Gallinari carried much of that second half. It's just, it's exactly what you probably thought it would be, which is let's just get all the shooters we can in the house and we'll bring in a big man who doesn't need the ball in Capella, who just wants to work the paint, just kind of wants to be a focal point. We'll throw him a couple of lobs every now and then to keep him active, keep him engaged. And that's really all we need to do from an inside-out standpoint. It's just brilliant stuff. You know, by the way, it looks exactly like the 2017, 2016, 2015 Warriors. It's exactly the situation 
you know? Now, they didn't hit draft lightning in a bottle like Steph Curry way down the line, but I guess close enough with Trey because I was one of those people out there, out there even just months ago saying, imagine trading Luka Doncic. Imagine being the guy who said, all right, we'll draft hit this guy, but we're going to flip him for that guy. That guy, Trey Young, that little dude with the curly hair, that's the guy I want. That's the guy I want. And it's just, it's a hell of a call. Not that Doncic is a bust by any means. He's a first-team All-NBA He's about to sign 200 million plus, but the comparison wasn't even one to be had six months ago. And now this guy, and maybe not even because of his shot, but because of these intangibles that I just talked about, this gamer in him that just kind of came out of nowhere. It is impossible not to root for this guy. Impossible. It's impossible. He, he, he engaged with the Madison square garden fans to a almost legendary level, right? In year three, with no prior experience there, he just decided, hey, if this if this crowd's going to push back on me, I'm going to give them everything I got with a look and a stare and a quiet and a, and a hush. And oh, by the way, with a deadly 30-point shot. It's just, it, it's pretty good stuff. And there's a lot of team building surrounding this Atlanta Hawks team. A lot of it. It is not, this is not a, well, let's just draft a bunch of guys and try to coach them up. That's not what this is by any means. Most of this team was manufactured via trade, some via free agency, some via offer sheets. I mean, they have, they have the whole grab bag here in Atlanta and it's pretty damn cool that it's worked out. Honestly, it's pretty damn cool that it's worked out, but I don't put anything past the top here, the GM. I mean, this guy saw it all happen out there West in San Francisco at the Bay. And clearly he was a part of it. Clearly. He had his hands in this matters and Bob Myers wasn't doing this thing alone. And he brought exactly that model. And look, it's not, it's not possible to create that warrior's model tit for tat. It's just not possible, but he's done his damn, hasn't he? He's done his best with limited cap space, with a roster that needed to be gutted. And that was step one, by the way, was let's trim this fat off so that I have a blank slate to work with. And they tanked at the right time. They knew there was the shoot, a, shoot, a couple of shooters in that draft. And they knew that the, that the shooting of Trey Young was going to be a better fit than the overall gameplay of Luka. He knew that at draft time. None of us did. Everyone else saw Luka as this complete player, this superstar, you know, really, I mean, over-the-top player. And he is. And we just had a pot about this not too long ago about, hey, you know what that is? That's hard to build around. Luca's hard to build around because he is a little bit of everything because he's grabbing boards because he's got that Russell Westbrook in him where, yeah, he can make a play. He can drive. He, in fact, he can drive with the best of them to the hoop. He'll hit an, he'll hit an occasional three. You know, he will make a nice pass here and there. He's got a lot of Westbrook in him. And what have we learned about Russ over the past 15 years? It's hard to win with him because it's hard to put guy two and guy three around him and make that all work because Russ just it's not that he requires so much of the court. It's that it's just his game. The athleticism in him just craves so much of the court. That's hard to build around. And for some, I think at least early on here, that's what we've seen with Luca. And oh, by the way, I think Luca's a little bit of a mini diva. It's okay. You got to have confidence. But I think Luca's divaness is more team focused, whereas the a little bit of noxiousness, right? The overconfidence in Trey Young, he's been pouring outward. He's been pouring publicly to fans, to others, to other teams, to the general public, which is a, a way better sell. Like we love that. We'll eat that up alive, you, you know, love or hate the guy. And also you don't alienate yourself from your other teammates when you do that. In fact, you probably empower the other teammates by having so much confidence that you're just willing to take on an entire arena. I, I think that's what Luca needs to figure out is if I just harness my anger outward versus internally, like I've been doing clearly with a coaching staff and a front office too, you know, there's no way he didn't have a hand in what just happened in Dallas there. Um, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that timelines over the next three to four seasons, because I think Mark Cuban's got a hell of a, Hell of a job on his hands here with that specifically. But Travis Schlenk figured this thing out. 
and I give him credit for identifying Trey Young as the singular piece. The, the, the shoot first, we'll figure out how to make him more of a playmaker. We'll figure out how to get him to bump elbows down in the paint as he evolves, as he grows into his body, things like that. We're here. That's what this is, year three. It's kind of like a year three quarterback, you know, that has to figure out all the bumps, has to slow the game down so the progressions become a little bit easier for him to read. I, I think we're here. Okay, Trey's got 30, 30 feet figured out. He, he has his shot in this league kind of perfected, even though he certainly wasn't on display in game seven for the most part. But now it's about, all right, how can I push the envelope? How can I get more players involved? How can I get into the paint, get to that free throw line where I'm just not missing those shots? You know, I may miss from 30, 16 times a game, but I'm not missing from the line. So I can take that part of my game over, make it a bigger part of my game, get more people engaged, and as a team, we all gel together. And that's and that's the trick. That's what he's figured out here. And that's why they are one of these final four teams. So let's talk money here, okay? 2020-21 cash team spending. Your Atlanta Hawks are 24th. This is a this is a Tampa Bay Rays story, all right? This is a Houston Astros story. That's what this is. This is a young team, for the most part, you know, middle-paid middle veterans, in Capella and Gallinari, things like that. Bogdanovich had got a, got a nice coin, but bunch of rookie contracts out there, and we we know that generally that doesn't win. Generally, Trey Young on his rookie deal shouldn't be able to get this far, and certainly not to the next level. So we'll see if if veteran presence prevails, and if the Milwaukee Bucks can kind of push them around here in this round. But they're here. They're the twenty fourth highest cash payroll in all of basketball. They are about the same cap wise, as you might imagine, as it's pretty much tit for tat in terms of how those finances work. Here's the rest of your final four. Okay. Phil, uh, excuse me. The Clippers are fifth. The Bucks are sixth and the Phoenix Suns are 20th. So to, to a lesser degree, that is a similar situation to the Hawks as we've talked about. That was basically built from within, right? I mean, you're Aiton, you're Booker. Bridges was acquired on draft day from Philadelphia, ironically. That's basically a homegrown team that they then took a $40 million Chris Ball and dropped him on top of it and said, let's go. And we kind of just saw that in football, didn't we? We kind of just saw a very well-drafted Tampa Bay Buccaneers team who showed signs of life with average quarterback play and a GM and coach that said, just get me above average at that position and I think everything else will tick and of course it did. And they didn't just get above average. They got the GOAT. So there's a lot of people that can pr probably draw that comparison with what Phoenix has done here. They had a, they, there's a lot of talent on that roster, a lot of players that are growing up in front of our eyes. And he just needed a, a father figure who can also be a monster with the, with the ball in hand. And that is Chris Paul. So if Chris Paul can get back, I really think that there's a legitimate chance for Hawks Phoenix final. Legitimate chance for two bottom 20, you know, the 20th and 24th payroll in the NBA in the finals, which is unprecedented. It just is. I'm telling you right now, I don't have the data in front of me. I will absolutely put that data out on Twitter soon, but I'm telling you right now, you pay for championships in, in the basket, in the NBA, you pay for, you pay for it. You get superstar players on max contracts and you let them go and cook and they win. That's how this league has worked now for over a decade long over a decade. I mean, ever since the Miami Heat situation, really ever since the, the Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett situation, Ray Allen, that's, that's when it, it was about, it was less about building for depth, building for future. And let's find a three-year window. Let's go get three freaking monsters, pay them as much as we got to pay them to get them in the door. Let's let them go play basketball for 82 plus. I mean, that's, that's basketball. So you're this, this well thought out, like, built for depth shooting team in the Atlanta Hawks with two players on rookie contracts, still two major, major players on rookie contracts. It's just unheard of. It's just not, they don't, they don't get to conference finals this way. So appreciate what this Atlanta Hawks team is not just on the court, but as a, as a team building exercise and a five-year plan. I mean, this is, like I said, the Houston Astros, this guy got here in May of 2017 in Sri Lanka and basically said, all right, I need this piece and this piece and this piece. I'll go get this one now. I'll get Gallinari this year. He's available, sitting on a bad team. 
that, that, you know, probably wants more first round picks. Of course they did. Um, you know, we will make a run at Bogdanovich because that's a shooter on a bad team. We want as many shooters as possible. And I think got, I think we got this kid in Trey who kind of fits our bill as the, as the centerpiece of this all. So let's just give this a couple of years to mature and see what happens. Now, I bet you they thought they were a year away. I also thought the same thing with Houston, with the Astros. You know, I thought the same thing with the Kansas City Royals when they did this a couple of years back. It's, you never know when a few of those pieces are going are gonna to flip the switch. You can kind of project, but you never know what's going to happen. And if they're pushed, sometimes these superstars, when they're pushed, they can really turn it on. And that's what we saw with Trey. You know, whether that's Nate McMillan, March 1st, sitting this kid down and saying, look, at this is what I think you really can be, and I'm going to challenge you, and pff, it worked. All right? Challenge accepted for sure. And like I said, impossible not to watch slash root for this kid right now, and for me specifically with my business goggles on for this team as a whole. Not sure they have a chance against this Bucks team, but um, because they have paid. Okay? They've paid via the trade. For Drew Holiday, they paid Giannis. Certainly, they paid Middleton. Many people think overpaid Middleton. <laughs> All right, there. This is a uh, this is a big boy roster, financially speaking. Sixth in the league in terms of cash. It's a big boy roster. Those those are definitely the teams. Look, if I'm just looking at payrolls, this should be a Bucks Clippers final without even trying. And that's just the way this stuff works. That's what general convention says. But we shall see. All right, quickly, the two franchises that were not in the final four. I guess we'll start with Philly, even though I'm sure that's driving the media storm this morning. Uh, I tweeted out the kind of notables on this team. It's, it's exactly what you think it is. I mean, they're under the cap next year, negative 19 to work with. You know, they've got a little bit of tax room to deal with. None of that really matters because I don't think there's anybody in the world right now, including him and his agent, Clutch, by the way, which is a factor who think Ben Simmons is going to be in the city of Philadelphia next year. I understand how much he has left on this contract. I mean, it's what is it? Four for one forty-six, fully guaranteed. And that's what's left. Somebody's going to take this on. Okay. Somebody's going to look at Ben Simmons and say, it's never been a good fit there. This guy needs point guards to play with. He needs shooters to play with. You can't have him and the big and another big man be the focal point of your roster, be the core one and two players. That's just not the way the game is going. I just told you that I just told you how the Hawks were built. You know, they have to kind of tickle their offense to get Clint Capella involved. And he's the perfect candidate because he just doesn't care. He doesn't care that there's seven possessions where he is a dummy, where he is a decoy, where he is just looking for offensive rebounds and rebounds and nothing more. So he's got that kind of a personality built into it. I, I don't know. I mean, Simmons, I'm not going to harp on him. You saw him just take, uh, he just took offense off every game this series, every fourth quarter. Uh, Tom Haberstraw has an unbelievable tweet out right now. <laughs> this is Ben Simmons' fourth quarter, all seven games of the Hawks series. Ready? Two for two in game one, zero for zero in game two, one for one in game three, zero for zero in game four, Zero for zero in game five, zero for zero in game six, zero for a zero in game seven. He was three for three in seven fourth quarters this series. I mean, that's what are we doing here? This guy's making 35 million a year. What are we doing here? I'm not going to knock the max contract. He's got talent. Okay. He's, he's loading up on assists. Uh, you know, he'll get to the rim and get those boards, but now he's afraid of getting fouled. So even he's even pulling back on that. Um, it's a Markel Fultz situation. It's in his head right now. It's unbelievable that this is the second player on this team, number one overall, who basically has the yips out there on the foul line, certainly with jump shots. And now just as a game, his whole game is now bound up. So I'm not going to knock the coach. I'm not going to knock Daryl Morey. I think Daryl Morey did the right thing trying to bring shooters in. I mean, they got rid of Josh Richardson, who was a statue out there last year, brought in Seth Curry, who had a phenomenal series, phenomenal series. Tobias Harris shot well. Just, I don't know if that's a fit either. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But I'm, what we know for sure now, what we know for sure is that the Simmons and Bede situation is a no. 
it's good enough to compete, but it's not good enough to contend. And that's just a fact. And Simmons' mental breakdown, and I'm not making light of that, it's just literally what we saw on the court, is exhibit A, B, C, and D. He can't handle it right now. There's too much on his plate in situations that he doesn't want to be in. So some team will take this four for 146 and try to change his whole role, right? Let's make him more of a Lonzo ball. Take the ball, dish it, go to the hoop for offensive boards, try to stuff it back home and, uh, and be that for us. I don't know who it's going to be. I, I really don't. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, is that Portland maybe? Portland's have has had defensive struggles for a decade. You know, are they going to give up maybe a shooter in maybe a McCollum to uh, to facilitate offense to defense? Uh, maybe uh, that works. I mean, Portland's going to make a move here too, and it's not going to be Dame Lillard, and Philadelphia has not given up in bead. So maybe they've got two secondary pieces that they can swap for each other. The, the salaries match almost freaking perfectly from a, a trade matching standpoint. That's just something I'll throw out there. I have no idea if it means a damn in terms of analytics and things like that. I'm just telling you two similar situations. Maybe there's a, there's a match to be made there. I'd say the same about Boston who needs to get tougher and more defensive oriented in the paint. I think Ben Simmons can be that. And Ben Simmons with a backcourt of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, that makes sense to me. Okay. That makes sense to me. Let him be the only big man on the court. Let him fade away like Clint Capella at times and then be brought in with lobs, be brought in with major boards, be brought in with low passing, which he excels at. He excels at inside out work. He excels at pick and rolls. Let's let that be the case. Let's get big old Joel Embiid out of his way and let him be the focal point of somebody with a good backcourt's paint. I I want this. I don't want to have to knock on Ben Simmons anymore. And I don't want to sit here and have to complain about his contract. I won't because number one, overall, we just had a Jamal Adams conversation. It's where you started and where your people think your potential can be. And I don't think there's a lot of people out there saying this guy's a bust. I think most of them are saying what I just said, which is he is in the, in the absolute worst position right now. He is on a team that is asking him to do things. He simply won't can't or struggles doing. So 24 years old, by the way, he's, he just, oh my God, was yesterday his birthday? How did I miss that on the broadcast? Oh my gosh. No, it's a month away. July 20th. Okay. July 20th is his birthday. So he's a month away from 24. What, what are we doing here? He's a kid still. He's got four for 146. He's got tons of term left on this contract. Let's get him into a new organization who can let him kind of figure out what his role needs to be. It might take a year. He may go there and it may be a disaster for the first year, but we've seen enough of Ben Simmons Philly. Okay. This is year, this was year five. We've seen enough of Ben Simmons Philly to know that this core with him involved is a no. It's a, it's above average, but it's not contention worthy. So I mean, he's out, but that's it. He's out and we'll have Keith Smith on soon and he'll have a lot more insight as to where the, where he might be going, you know, where he fits better where this contract can fit in, all that good stuff. Um, Other notable free agents. It's not a huge list, right? It's nothing crazy. I mean, this team doesn't have to gut itself. Danny Green, Mike Scott, Dwight Howard. I don't know. Is Danny Green done? Probably. He's probably done. Dwight Howard's probably done. I don't know why Dwight Howard's playing on the fourth quarter yesterday, but he's probably done. Um, They hold the number 28 pick. They hold the 50th pick. So they can replenish the, uh, the pool a little bit there. Although that's, you know, those are obviously just total toss up guest draft picks at that point. And like I said, they've got a uh, basically nothing to work with from a tax and cap perspective. They'd have to move some pieces. Um, I'm a column for Simmons trade would be basically straight up. You take a couple of big men off of Boston. Maybe you can, you can free up some tax space moving Simmons to Boston. If that's a move that's made, um, and they have an $8 million trade exception on the Al Horford piece. So you can bring in maybe a mid-level guy there to fill in some blanks. I mean, it's not like you have to, <laughs> it's not like you need too much to uh, pick up Ben Simmons production. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's basically playing as a replacement player right now in terms of what you're getting stats wise. So I, I think they're going to be okay moving on from Simmons and, and whatever they get back. It's just, I, I 
what what is to be said about the process? I mean, if the process is we're going to get a bunch of guys number one overall, I think it's like five, and we're going to be left with one. And look, Joel Embiid's great, but it's not like he doesn't hold red flags. Every every time he, you know, every sixth game I see him, I feel like he's 15 seconds away from career-ending leg injuries. I just, I worry about the guy. <laughs> and he really did, by the way, he really did get himself in shape for this season. And he was a monster. He was a monster. He, he earned his All-NBA he earned his MVP votes. Uh, I give him full credit. And, and I think it's okay to give him the keys to this team and maybe see what he can do now without having to care for or maybe maneuver around Ben Simmons. It's just not a good fit. Let's just move on. Let's, let's see what Embiid can do here. Let's see what Simmons can do somewhere else. I, I think that's perfectly fine. And it's where the league is going anyway. Um, other than that, you know, Joel Embiid, two for 65. Tobias Harris, three for 113. Seth Curry, two for 16. One of the best values in all of basketball. That's the core right there. That's the core. And there's plenty of cash to be paid out. There's plenty of, uh, I think there's plenty of suitors for Ben Simmons. I, I don't believe that the rest of the league looks at him as a bust. I think they look at him as a troubled guy in a bad spot right now. That's all. No big deal. How about these Nets? Um, here's something we absolutely do know about this season. If the Nets were healthy, we would not even be talking about basketball right now because the championship would be over. You just hand it to them. He'll everybody go home early, take an early vacation to get ready for next October. They were that damn talented. And oh, by the way, the fact that it was just basically Durant for a series and a half, he's that damn talented. <laughs> so there's my Nets takeaways. Here's how it looks from a financial standpoint. They're way over. I mean, minus 56 of cap, minus 38 of tax. And I don't think they're really dumping anything. I mean, you're not getting rid of this core three. That's for damn sure. Maybe you consider moving on from Joe Harris, but I don't believe so. I think um, there's something wrong there. Uh, reduced role. Some, something, something's off there with Joe Harris. You take the offseason, you work on that, you fix it. I think that's no problem. Dinwiddie's going to walk. He's going he's gonna to decline his 12 and change player option. And rightfully so. It's a weak free agent market. And a player like him, even though he has injury past, you put him on the, on the open market, there's going to be offers. He's going to be able to, uh, to push his envelope a little bit on a team that could probably play him a hell of a lot more than he'll get here in, in Brooklyn. So um, he's a guy I expect to hit. I, I don't know what you do with Blake Griffin. That one's pretty interesting. It's certainly an expiring contract, soon to be free agent. Uh, he was pretty darn valuable. So maybe you look to upgrade on him and find somebody maybe younger with a little bit more presence who can really give you 40 minutes uh, of crunch time paint. And if he can't find it, you probably run him back. You own his rights. I, I think you maybe run him back and see if you can get at least one more year of this revised, re-energized Blake Griffin, who certainly loves being here. I mean, he's playing like a kid out there. He's, he looks like he's playing like a kid. I know, physically speaking, he can't do it all anymore. But um, I, I, my guess is you try to improve that position. And if you're, if you're not finding luck in doing it, then I don't, I don't think you feel too bad about bringing back, him back. Jeff Green, <laughs> he gets a lot of crap. But, man, he plays defense hard. He really does. Uh, you know, uh, you hold his rights. Uh, you probably run him back, too, unless he retires. <laughs> I I, I just don't know why you'd change too much of, the, much of this team because outside of injuries, and look, maybe the fact that these are these are all older players is something that you have to really consider. You know, do you have to get younger so that you're less apt to be injured, less apt to be injured? Because clearly that was the, the theme of this year for this team is they just couldn't stay healthy. And there were some of us who thought that maybe Kyrie was just taking some time off to be able to push this year, you know, for this. And maybe Durant was taking a little extra time off to make sure he was ready for mid-June, early July. But the reality is all these guys I'm talking about are up there. I mean, they're, they're savvy vets in the twilights of their career. And those guys just get injured more. They just do. It's just a fact of life. I get injured walking down the stairs at my house. It's just part of life. Um, so, you know, there may be a push to flip a Jeff Green, a Blake Griffin into younger pieces just for stability just for availability right the best ability is availability and that's the reason the nets didn't win the championship this year they didn't have players available to them so 
I could understand the Brooklyn front office saying, God, we'd love to run all these guys back, but I just can't trust it for 70 plus games plus a postseason. I got to get somebody who is going to hold up, who I can play 30 to 35 and is going to hold up out there. I get that. I do. Number 27 are overall pick and three second rounders, 44, 49, 59. Who knows? Trade pieces, possibly. Um, I wouldn't expect a big, big swing and uh, move off this team. That's for darn sure. I'd expect uh, much of the same out of the the core for sure. I mean, the core of James Harden, which is one for 44 plus a $47 million player option. Kevin Durant, one for 42 plus a $44 million player option. And right on cue, Kyrie Irving, one for 35 plus a $36 million player option. So the... <laughs> The glass half empty side of me could tell you that next year is the could be the window closing for this Brooklyn Nets team already. Feels like it just started. But, you know, when your three core guys have player options in 2023, a year, by the way, when the caps should explode, you're either going to be paying Golden State prices to keep this thing intact, or there's going to be splitsville, at least to some degree here. So it's a big upcoming season for these Nets. And they are not thinking about three, four years down the road. They are thinking about next year specifically. It is their time to win the championship. And I don't expect too many moves. I wouldn't. Okay. That's all I got for you. Sorry for flying solo today. We'll get some guests back on later this week, of course. Any questions, hit me up at Spotrek on Twitter. My thanks to The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash Spotrek for 40% off your first year subscription. And to Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment empowering professional athletes for pre and post draft loan programs. Visit morganstanley.com slash GSE today. My name is Mike Giannetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Track Podcast.